Nice to see you this evening. Always a joy to be together in Christ. Let's read together from God's Word. As a little later, we'll continue our sojourn in the book of Ruth. Just our third study in Ruth, we began by thinking about the tears, the going away. Last week, we had our first look at the tears, the coming home, and we continue that study tonight, the tears, the coming home. Reading, as we did last week, from Ruth chapter 1, verses 8 through 22. Ruth 1, commencing at verse 8. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will be find rest in the home of another husband. And she kissed them, and they wept aloud, and said to her, We will go back with you, to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me. Even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is, much, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they've wept again. Then Oprah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Luke said, Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is God's word. May God have a blessing to his word tonight. 
And so last week we began to think about the tears, the coming home. I did warn you, I had four points and I would be surprised if I got beyond the first. Well, clearly I didn't get beyond the first. We thought last week about Naomi's example, the example of a woman of God. We move on then to think about the pain. The family's pain. Note in chapter 1 verses 9 through 14. The pain. We read in verse 9, 9b, that Naomi kissed her daughters-in-law. And notice, they wept aloud. The weeping expressed the grief. And the grief was in part the ambivalent feelings for Orpah and for Ruth of needing to choose the love between the love for Naomi and the hope of motherhood in a second marriage. Initially, of course, they refused to go. But Naomi's insistence meant that Orpah was eventually persuaded to leave. The picture here is one of hopelessness. Wouldn't you agree? The picture here is one of despair. And friends, we don't have to roam too far from this place of worship to see pictures of hopelessness and pictures of despair. Do we? Both Naomi's own pain and her sharing in the tearing choice confronting Ruth and Orpah find expression in her cry. No, my daughters-in-law, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. I have to confess, I'm a little impressed. (laughs) Here, Naomi is is confessing that her pain is more bitter than that of her daughters-in-law. Arguably it is. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's lost her inheritance. She's lost everything. But in the midst of her suffering, she still seems concerned for the welfare of her daughters-in-law. That's something, isn't it? She's not so self-obsessed and self-consumed that she doesn't see the need of what's in front of her. Oft times, we Christians, we're so self-obsessed, aren't we? So self-consumed because of our lot in life, we don't see the needs of those right in front of us. I'm reminded of Christ on the cross. How poignant it was. There he was in the midst of his intolerable suffering. And he was consumed not with his own need. But the need of his mother, Mary. Do you remember? There on the cross, his blood flowed. Agony beyond our comprehension. And he saw Mary. And he said to John, the beloved disciple, John, here is your mother. Mary, here is your son. He was consumed, even in the midst of his own pain, with the needs of others. Wow, that moves me. 
that moves me. How often I get so full of my own needs, my own sorrow, my own pain, and I fail to see the needs in front of me. Needs arguably far greater than my own. Because friends were talking about spiritual needs. Oh, I beat my breast. Woe is me because I'm hurting. Or woe is me because I am undone. And yet right before me are men and women, boys and girls, who are lost in sin. Who are going to a Christless eternity. How dare I moan and groan about my pain? How dare we? Ah, it sounds the death knell of many a church and chapel. Self-obsession. Woe is us. Our little chapel. Our little church. And right before our eyes, people are going to hell. I'm impressed by Naomi. More bitter for me, she says. But she sends her daughter-in-law's home. How selfless was that? For if they both went, as she urged, she would be entirely alone. Travelling from Moab west towards Bethlehem entirely alone. Oh, my friends, let us pray that we don't become so self-obsessed, so self-consumed with our lot, difficult though it might be, that we cannot see the needs of those right in front of our eyes. Oh, the pain. It's desperate, isn't it? I'm also impressed by Naomi's truthfulness. (laughs) Truthfulness of her life before God. There's no sense of Naomi hiding her feelings here, is there? No pretense that her anger didn't exist. No sweeping aside her convictions with some stoic, stiff upper lip. Oh, I sometimes wonder here in this country that we suffer. We lack Because of the proverbial British stiff upper lip. We've forgotten how to weep. Ah, you say, it's not the done thing, is it? We Brits, we don't weep. Maybe that's the problem. We don't weep. We don't weep. Here's Naomi, weeping almost uncontrollably. She is honest before her God. She cries out to God and says it as it is. Ah, the family's pain. Can I encourage you to be honest with God? Oft times we are less than honest. Be honest with him. You can't pull the wool over his eyes anyway, can you? You can't can't pretend to be 
something before a God who, who searches the innermost recesses of our hearts. Can you? You can't, you can't hide away from his searching eyes. The omniscient one, the all-knowing one, he knows how it is with you tonight. Why pretend? Boy, oh boy, so many Christians are pretending. God give us Naomi's spirit of honesty and openness. I'm bitter, God. My second thought concerns the faith, Ruth's faith in point of fact. Verses 14 through 18. In many ways, Orpah showed her love for Naomi by obeying Naomi's wish. Ruth also showed her love for Naomi by remaining a daughter. Ruth, we are told, I love this in verse 14, Ruth clung to her. We could be here all night, couldn't we? Ruth clung to her mother-in-law. This verb is the word of committed, faithful cleaving in a very, very deep way. The same word is used of the man cleaving to his wife in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 24. As a man leaves his father and mother. And is, NIV says, united to his wife. Same word, cleaves to his wife. Same word is also used of the committed faithfulness. Which God desires of his covenant people. In response to his initiative of saving grace. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 20. God there exhorts his people, fear the Lord your God and serve him. And Avi says, hold fast to him. Same word, hold fast to him. Cleave to your God. Ruth the Moabites, the former worshipper of Chemosh, is displaying here a quality of life that is meant to be a characteristic of the people of Yahweh. <laughs> How often we find that? How often do we find unconverted people in today's society displaying a quality of life that is meant to be a characteristic of Christians, of you and I? But often people outside the Christian church appear to be more Christian than those within the confines of the church. Ouch! Ruth he clung to Naomi. I'm going to go off on a tangent, if I may. Remember those? Pastor's tangents. Because I believe I have a prophetic word. And so as this strictly isn't exegetical in nature... I, I beg your forgiveness because I believe it to be prophetic for someone here tonight. God is asking you, my friend, to cling to Him. He's asking you to cling to Him. Ah, yes, you're buffeted. Ah, yes, the going has got tough. 
Ah, yes, you become distracted by by all manner of things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I, I don't blame you for being distracted. I've been there. But you're also distracted by, by the church, folk in church. And God is ministering to you tonight, and he's saying to you, my child, cling to me. What did it mean for Ruth to cling to Naomi? Well, it meant travel. It meant that she had to leave her home in Moab and find a new home. Maybe that's where you're at. God's asking for you to cling to him tonight. And it might mean for you something of an upheaval, something of a change of environment, a change of geography. Cling to him. For Ruth clinging to Naomi, it meant a change in home. It meant a change of faith, a conversion experience for her. Your God, she says, will be my God. God is saying tonight, my friends, will you cling to me? Leah Morris puts it, Ruth is determined that nothing, not even death, will separate her from Naomi. My friends, are you so determined for Christ? Are you so determined for Christ that nothing but death will separate you? And in point of fact, not even death can separate. For, for the truth is, for some... We're not clinging. We've let go. And God says tonight, my child, cling to me. Cling to me. Because I tell you something, my friend, he will not let go of you. Nothing nor no one can snatch you from the hand of a loving Heavenly Father who did not even keep back His own Son that He might redeem you from the grave. There's a wonderful hymn, isn't there, by Matheson, O love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in Thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow might richer, fuller be. He will not let go of you, my friend, but you can divorce yourself from him. And the Holy Spirit is saying tonight, some of us are just here. And he's saying, cling to me. Cling to me. My third thought is this. The gossip. I wish I could avoid this. I did my best, I promise, in my preparations this week to avoid this. In fact, I walked away from my desk three times. Hoping that as I walk from my desk three times, the Holy Spirit would take it away. And the Holy Spirit, when I came back to my desk, did not.
take it away. The gossip, the women's gossip in point of fact. Now you might read this another way. That's fine, let's exchange notes later. So long as you're convinced the Holy Spirit has prompted you. Verses 19 through 22. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined, she gave in to her determination and the two widows journeyed together to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, we read that the whole town was stared because of them. Interesting. The whole town was stared because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? It was rhetorical. It wasn't a question they were asking themselves. It was an ex- they exclaimed. Knox, in a rather sexist manner, narrows these women down to all the gossips who were not particularly concerned about Naomi's personal welfare, but who were stirred into asking the rhetorical question, can this be Naomi? Gossips, he said. I have to be honest, that's the feeling of the text. Nothing like a juicy bit of gossip, is there? Oh, we love gossip, don't we, in the valleys? Ah, you say, we're not in the valleys here. Hallelujah. We don't suffer from that problem then, do we? Nothing like a nice, juicy bit of gossip. Can you imagine... Here was Naomi, who went away full, coming back, very much tail between her legs, so to speak, empty, bitter. Ooh, nice bit of meaty gossip to get your teeth into here, isn't there? Were these women genuinely concerned for Naomi's welfare? Well, we don't read of them offering her shelter, do we? We don't read of them offering to help her, maybe with some food or provision, do we? We read of the gossip. Ooh! Can can, can this this really be Naomi? (laughs) Look at her now. Isn't it strange... How every generation down through the centuries have their share of gossips who are not necessarily contrary to popular patriarchal opinion, always women. In fact, from my experience, we men can gossip just as well. You know, I can tolerate many things within the confines of the Christian church. But I don't find it easy to tolerate gossip amongst the people of God. Because from experience, I find gossip to be destructive. I find it to be derisive. I find it to be malicious. The writer of the Proverbs has quite a lot to say about gossip. Proverbs 11.13, a gossip betrays a confidence. I've been there. 
betrayed. Have you? Hurts, doesn't it? Proverbs 16, 28. A gossip separates close friends. I've trusted close friends. Who have subsequently gossiped and stabbed me in the back. I've been there of you. Boy, it hurts, doesn't it? Here we find these women of Bethlehem. Pouring hot coals over Naomi's head. She came back bitter, but oh. No sense of, oh, can we pray with you? Or no sense of, can we help you in any way? Or can we come to your aid? Or come, not at all. Just a, a nice, juicy bit of gossip. James reflects in his epistle, the tongue is a fire. A world of evil among the many parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person. Sets the whole course of his life on fire. And is itself set on fire by hell. My friends. Shortly we'll come around this table of remembrance. As we were worshipping. The Lord gave me some scripture for someone here. Maybe more than one. The Lord in his sermon on the mount says, You have heard it said, Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. You see, Jesus here is speaking about an attitude of the heart towards our brothers and sisters. Therefore, he says, if anyone... If you were offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and sister and then come and offer your gift. I remember a number of years ago, sat under the ministry of arguably one of my spiritual heroes, George Verwer can't say that yet because he's not gone to glory but you know what I mean <laughs> as a young Christian I was blessed by his ministry he was the founder of Operation Mobilization George Verwer on one occasion outlined ten signs of a backsliding Christian you know what the second sign was a critical spirit a critical spirit Gossip in the church, my friends. It's of the enemy. And if you can't say something to build your brother or sister up in Christ, then can I suggest lovingly and with great respect, you don't say anything at all. Unless you're sure, perhaps with a third witness, that you're bringing a word in season and of the Holy Spirit. 
And then, if you bring that word of rebuke, it will be brought in such a way, with love, that it will be received easily. And before you're tempted to talk about your brother and sister when they're not there, please think carefully about what you're doing. And if you're going to gossip about them, something that's unhealthy or, or something that's perhaps just, just hearsay. You've heard something. Oh, I must pass that on. Not to them, but to somebody else. That's not helpful. That's not of Christ. Please think again. Because it is, particularly in these days, by this kind of innocent, we think, innocent manner, that Satan is sowing seeds of dissension, even within our midst. And the Holy Spirit is saying, gently, don't do it. We're going to take communion in a moment. With your brothers and sisters in Christ. I put it to you. It's extraordinarily presumptuous of you. To take communion. As a corporate act of unity. If you've said something. That's unhealthy. That's not building up. But actually is tearing down. I'll end on a high. (laughs) Naomi cried to these gossips, Don't call me Naomi. That meant pleasant, of course. Call me Mara, because I am bitter. And she says something here in verse 20, If you're not careful, you'll miss it. Because in the midst of of what appears to be a, a desperately dark and depressing circumstance, she says something in verse 20 that's quite wonderful. Because she says, I, I call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life bitter. Now you can pass over that if you wish. I won't let you. <laughs> Naomi's use of the title Almighty here, I would consider hugely significant. There's a sense in which she's not really just shaking the fist at God with a bitterness of spirit. There's a sense in which she's surrendering. To God. She used the word almighty in the Hebrew. Shaddai. Shaddai. David Atkinson, Old Testament scholar, says by the use of the word Shaddai here. It is as though Naomi was saying to her kinsfolk. You see the bitterness I have experienced. The famine, the bereavement, the questionings, the partings, the apparent hopelessness of my situation. You see it. But I know God as Shaddai. And therefore, in the midst of my pain, I can leave the explanation. I can even leave the responsibility for this bitterness with Him. Isn't that something? Should I? Almighty God. I'm reminded of the psalmist in Psalm 73 who reached a point of despair 
when he considered the prosperity of the wicked and the apparent futility of living a righteous life. But in the midst of his despair, he reached towards Shaddai. And he says, when I tried to fathom all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood. Oh, my friend, in the midst of your oppression, reach up towards Shaddai. David in Psalm 30 was in a place of crying before his God, pleading for God's help, and then was able to reflect in Psalm 30 verse 5, weeping may remain for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And so here at this dark point of Naomi's life, rather than just mere darkness and despair, there's a glimmer of hope. As he reaches towards Shaddai, Almighty. My friend, can I encourage you? In the midst of darkness and despair, in the midst of question and confusion, in the midst of heartache and pain, reach towards Shaddai, Almighty God. The psalmist in 46 says, He lifts His voice and the earth melts. <laughs> oh, why do we fret so? Why do we fret so? Why are you so fretful? Why are you, are you so worrying? He lifts His voice. The earth melts. No wonder the psalmist says, The Lord Almighty is with us, El Shaddai. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And this verse from the depths of darkness and despair launches us, my friends, into amazing things in the book of Ruth as we go a fortnight's time into chapter 2 onwards. Let's pray.